It's not unusual to find plenty of wine caves and wine cellars in wine country. What is unusual is discovering a sophisticated broadcast facility inside these well-protected and often top-secret chambers. But maybe it really isn't that surprising that America's number one wine broadcast originates from the soul of wine country. And it is our great privilege to do all we can to inspire you. If you drink wine simply because, well, it's a drink, we've got our work cut out. For literally thousands of years, wine has fueled celebrations, ended conflicts, and provided the ultimate connection between one human being and another. It makes food taste better, lifts spirits, sparks our imagination, and beckons us to slow down and love life. If that all sounds good to you, you're in the right place. So sit back, clear your head, put any worries you have on hold, and join us as we go in search of this week's Grape Encounter. But be warned, we speak a much different language than what you typically experience in most wine-centric environments. But you didn't come here because you're ordinary, did you? Good, because your host, David Wilson, is here to take you far, far away from the beaten path. Here's David. There are times when I have guests on that I can't even sleep the night before because they are so much fun to talk to. I feel like it's my own personal indulgence. There are times when the folks that I get to speak to change my life. And that's a description of the person that we have on today. I got to take you back to the beginning of the pandemic. Back in March of last year, none of us knew where this thing was going. But we had all been instructed to shelter in place. And that was the time that I met Chef Rick Moonen. And Rick is one of the truly great chefs on the planet. And he's got a specialty that I think is just something that we don't in the cooking world talk that much about. And it's fish. In fact, Rick is called the godfather of sustainable seafood. And that is a great title and a noble one. And Rick Moonen, I am so tickled that you're on the show with me today. What a pleasure, man. You're, you're a great man. I love talking with you. We, we had so much fun back in March. And you were doing some really interesting things. You and your wife had just decided that you were going to make the most of this lockdown. The reason that I put you on the show is because you were doing this thing at date night and you and your yeah. wife would dress up in costumes and then do a date. Talk about that for a second and tell me if you're still doing that. Uh, well, truth be told, David, that was therapy for us because uh, we were at each other's throat. Oh, no. So you see all the good stuff. That's the beauty of Facebook and Twitter and all that. It's all the happy pictures. <laughs> Yeah, you know, right. but we were totally like freaking out. We were not in a good place. And this is what happens in marriages. So we came to a realization that we had to bring some normalization to all of this somehow. So you go three days in sweats. We're not going to get out. Nothing's going on. So my wife came up with this. She's like, hey, you know what? Let's have date night. Let's get dressed up. Let's take a shower, shave, get ready. Like we're going to get in the car and go out, you know, and we'll cook around a the theme and we'll help some friends out that need branding for wines or whatever it is. You know, a friend of mine, Michael Passmore at the Caviar Company, we did something with him and we got French, you know, we could cook caviar, you know, yeah. all dressed up and, you know, we had champagne and caviar during the pandemic. And I got a lot of crap for that. <laughs> 
<laughs> so one lady came at me with two guns blaring. How dare you show this extravagance during this? And what it was, and we did this series, like you said. We just had fun. There were some great photographs that you published. I would tune in to what you were doing every mm-hmm. couple of days because it really actually gave me hope because I've been sheltered in place alone. Well, it's Henry. I got Henry here. He's a 14-year-old multi-poo. And he doesn't say much, really. But I was inspired by what you were doing because I guess the statement that you were making to the world and your fans is, you know what? It's a bad situation, but it doesn't mean that we've got to sit around and mope about it. You know, Brought some normalcy to my Yeah, life. we're home, so let's make the most of that. But before we jump in too much further here, Rick, I just want to talk a little bit about your resume because it is really, really an amazing list of achievements that you've managed to accomplish. And first of all, I see you're wearing a CIA hat. Culinary and, Institute and, of America. Right. It's not that CIA. Yeah. Culinary Institute of America, which is, for the most part, the most prestigious place that you can go educate yourself where food and wine is concerned. And then you've just racked up a long list of restaurants that you have been a part of either as head chef or owner. Do you mind running down that list just for me? And, you know, the last oh, stop man. was at the Mandalay Bay, but. Oh, I was, I was lucky, you know, my timing, you know, when I was at the CIA, it wasn't known as the best school in America. It was becoming one, but it really they had the greatest chefs. So I was lucky to be there at that time. Yeah. Timing is everything. I was right in the curl of the wave on my board, you know. I'm not even a surfer. I don't know why I'm making that analogy. But, <laughs> well, all right. But my life just kept curling around me, you know, and I, and, and I was ambitious enough and fearless enough. And, you know, I swam with the fishes in New York City. You know, I was at La Côte Basque when it opened up in 1980, 79 with Charlie Palmer, you know, and I was just became the saucier from this other guy. And it became this network of uh, things that were happening by just working diligently, putting your head down and loving what you were doing and not afraid of 12 hour days, you know, and then six hour nights drinking or whatever it may have become. But the reality was like, you know, La Cote Basque, Le Cirque. I worked at these small bistro restaurants on Madison Avenue that, you know, you weren't appreciated, you worked your butt off. But eventually I got to the water club through Chelsea Central, yeah. the restaurant where I got my first review from the New York Times. Brian Miller gave me two stars there. And so that was like, eh, you know, and, you know, you take all the, the criticisms that are embedded in that two star review to heart. Like, kill yourself, huh? You know, and then I ended up with a job at the Water Club on the East River, you know, sister restaurant to the River Cafe. Yeah. You know, and that's where I really got to run a place that was like a $10 million a year restaurant. Huge parties. Fourth of July, that's where they shot off the fireworks for Macy's. It became these great orchestrations of major events. And to be involved in that was such an adrenaline rush, you know. And after a while, you know, you get reviews, you got, you know, you got great reviews in Gourmet magazine and all the magazines and everything is, you know, pretty much consistent. And then I ended up going to Oceana a restaurant that uh, really changed my life. You know, that's where I got three stars from the New York Times and became very well known. And we ended up with a public relations person that pushed me onto everything. And it became um, a whirlwind of working your ass off and, and going on. And then we opened a sister restaurant, which is a Greek restaurant because it was a Greek owner called Molivos, still there. Great restaurants, great family. You know, the Livano's family that I worked with as a partner, amazing to be with, super solid. And we got three stars there too. <laughs> So we had two three-star restaurants at one time I was overseeing, you know, Molivos and Oceana. Not many chefs have had that, you know. I mean, you've got Daniel Ballou and, and, and John George probably. And, you know, but it just becomes one of those things that you know you carry around and you do. And you've racked up some James Beard awards. 
James Beard, I've done so many things for James Beard, at James Beard and with James Beard and contribute everything, you know, put it all in there. Um, I got nominated for Best Chef West. And then I got an award for a documentary that I did called Chefs of Field, Emonic, Alaska. You know, it's way, 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 way. <laughs> the, there's not a sidewalk. I don't, I don't know. I know nothing of it. Yeah, well, it's for the sound. So, so at what point did fish become important to you? That is a real specialty. And I mean, when you watch food shows, you know, they don't talk about fish like they talk about meats and poultries and things like um, that. Yeah, I don't know why. I guess when I ended up at Oceana, that's when I became very, you know, steadfast in my exploration of the ocean and everything about it. Knowing where it comes from, how it's caught, how many are there, what's going on, what are the effects, and all the things that I didn't actually sign on for, I started learning, and my backpack got more full of Mr. Sustainability because, hey, people, you got to know what's going on here. It should be called Planet Ocean, not Planet Earth. It's covered in water, you know, <laughs> you got some land. At any rate, that's really where it became my focus. I mean, I can cook meat. You know, I mean, and right now I work for a steakhouse. You know, I mean, it's all about typecasting, David. You, you, you yourself. You know, you know a lot about food. You know, I know, but I'm generally forced to talk about wine. But frankly, you can't talk about wine without talking about food. I'm trying to break out of that mold a little bit, which is why, by the way, you're here, because I really wanted to broaden our horizons with Grape Encounters. So when we come back, I have compiled a list of questions on a number of fish-related topics that I think if we can get the answers to these questions that everybody will have a much better relationship with seafood. We're talking to Rick Moonen. He just finished a stint for a, a, quite a while at the Mandalay Bay, had two restaurants there. Now he is the master development chef for Perry's organization, which has quite a few restaurants, all of them very unique. They all have their own character. We all try to nuzzle up to the community that we uh, embed ourselves in. There's a lot of thought that goes into it. It becomes a real watering hole, no matter what. It doesn't feel like, uh, you know, it's part of a group. That's part of the culture of the organization, which I'm proud to be a part of. All right, we're going to take a break right now, and we will be back with more Grape Encounters. And yes, we are going to talk about wine today, but it's going to be as it relates to seafood. So a very different angle than we normally do on Grape Encounters. Many wine enthusiasts describe wine as a kind of time machine that can transport you to the place and time it was created without leaving home. Whether you're sipping a Sangiovese from Italy or a German Riesling, tasting is traveling. That being said, Total Wine & More is like the world's biggest airport. With more than 8,000 wines from every corner of the world in their stores, you can be incredibly adventurous and savor every journey. Plus, you can do all of your shopping online at TotalWine.com and pick up your order at your local store or curbside for the ultimate in safe shopping. There's always more in store at Total Wine and More. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, walnuts and wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, 
free trade chocolate-covered walnuts. And for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. to tell people that I'm a very competent chef and I brag about my cooking a lot. But the truth be known is there are certain things that I do very well and other things I stay far, far away from because I just can't seem to figure it all out. And I think an area where people have a really tough time is really the entire world of seafood. You know, it's different than cooking anything else. If you try to treat seafood like you treat beef or poultry, you make it a big mistake. Maybe that's an assumption that I've got wrong, but I've got somebody on today, Rick Moonen, who is so highly regarded in the world of seafood. And also he gets involved behind the scenes with the sustainability movement. And if there's anybody that's got the answers to how do you do it right where seafood is concerned, it is Rick. And Rick, I asked you earlier about seafood and how it became the emphasis of what you're doing. Is it fair to say that it is? You know, because everything that you've done practically has an attachment to the ocean. And I just wonder, do you love seafood more than other things or is it just a fun thing to cook? It's just a fun thing to cook. I mean, I'm being honest with you. You know, I've, I've become known as the you know, king of seafood and all these things. It's because I was typecasted in one of the greatest restaurants I ever had the privilege of being in. It's Oceana in New York City. Right. And I became very active in uh, bringing out more awareness about our ecosystem. You start breaking parts off, the engine's not going to run, you know, just right. simple mentality. So I became more and more embedded in it, wrote a, a cookbook called Fish Without a Doubt. You know, and of course, you know, I was always competing with La Bernadette and Oceana, you know. So we were both in an era where America was becoming more embracing of that level of seafood because seafood was always baked fried, casserole, yeah, right? overcooked, overcooked. Find any old cookbook on seafood, good luck, it doesn't exist. So we were inventing that new stuff. People were starting to figure out sushi. What is sushi? What is raw? What is crudo? What is boom, 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 boom. And it just you know, blossomed out onto this tree of acceptance, understanding, and, and comfort. But so when it comes to wine, which we're going to talk about, I think guys and gals like you have been responsible for changing the rules where pairing seafood and wine is concerned because it was always, you know, white with fish. But then when you start creating these really big, bold sauces and, and doing blackened things and really getting far more inventive with fish. Bringing mushrooms in autumn and all those flavors, perfect with peanut, why not, you know? Right. So the rules begin to change. So I'm going to ask you some questions today. I've got a bunch of them, but they're just things that baffle me a little bit. And then we'll also talk about the wines that relate to that question. Fair enough? Go for it. Yeah, All right. I love it. The first question is probably the number one question that I think people have where seafood is concerned, and it's simply fresh or frozen? Fresh you or know, frozen? You know, obviously fresh is best, but I've changed my point of view on certain frozen products. You know, I freeze things myself. You know, I'll get an entire can of unbelievable sea scallops, so I'll, I'll pack them in groups of a dozen and seal them and put them in my freezer, and they're perfectly good. You know, so fresh or frozen, it depends. It really, truly does. But frozen isn't as bad as you think in certain circumstances, but be wary of how they're treating 
you know, the fish before they freeze it. Some of them have chemicals. How would you even know that? You can read that on a package, you know, and if do you they, see, Do they have to when, disclose that? Yeah, okay. Yeah, truth and labeling. Somewhere along the line, you, you have to be given that information if requested. But it's true. All know, right. So, so I'm standing there in the seafood department and I've got a choice between two fish. And you always have a choice between these two fish. And I always have a tough time deciding. And it's halibut or cod. You know, because I, I think people tend to cook them in a very similar fashion. Is there one of the two that you think is going to get you further in terms of people going wow over your meal? Yeah, cod. Because cod, cod has more oil. And oil is always, if, if, if it's fresh, if it's handled properly. You can pull in wine terms here because they're going to happen. You know, mouthfeel. Halibut overcooked to a little bit can turn to cotton. It gets stringy. It can feel fibers in it. And that's the Pacific halibut. You know, the Atlantic halibut is not sustainable. It had more fat in it. I guess, you know, I grew up in the Northeast, so I'm going to wave that flag once in a while because I experienced it. It's part of my hallmark of, of flavors and textures. So yeah, I would go with cod because of the oil. Just simple, quick okay, okay, that's actually the direction that I leaned, but I didn't know why I leaned that way. So that's terrific. But now you've got this fish that has oil in it. How does that change things where wine is concerned? Well, it gives you more depth of flavor to play with. Uh, it's got more complexity. If we're going to look at a piece of cod and talk about it in terms of wine, I mean, it's got a sweetness, you know, and depending on how you handle it, you better be using salt because that'll give you this amazing flake because it starts to draw the moisture. Well, hold on, hold on a second. So you got to explain that. How's the salt figure into things? Oh, salt changes everything. You go way back into the history of things, and this is who I am. You know, I go deep and stuff. Um, you know, cuts. That's what they would uh, salt and dry and bacala. And it's part of the European culture. It's part of many, many, many different cultures around the world. It's, just, it's based on cod. It used to be the most abundant fish in George's Banks, the Northeast. You know, people could walk on the backs of them and walk across the ocean on the backs of all these cod. You know, parables have been written about cod. This is the fish. So salt and this fish react in a manner in which, okay, as soon as salt touches the freshly cut filet, it starts to tighten it up. It brings it really? tighter together. It draws out some of the moisture. It infu- yeah, and it changes the texture of the fish. And it preserves it. Le Bernardin, you know, one of the finest seafood restaurants in America, they brine their fish, all of it. Everything gets dipped in, in a solution of, of salted water. Salty to the point of taste of the ocean. You mentioned something that I think a lot of people, probably most people don't know what it is, and that's bacala. And I grew up in a half Italian family or I'm half Italian, and the Italian side at events, you would see bacala. And we as kids wouldn't touch it because it was nasty because the fish begins rock solid hard. They don't protect it in any way. It's just sitting on a counter. It's Um, a skateboard. (laughs) It's exactly right. Yeah, it looks like a skateboard. But you know what? A couple of years ago, I decided to see what bacala was all about because my grandfather always, you know, raved over it. And I soaked that thing and I did everything that the cookbook told me that I needed to do. And it was actually pretty darn good. Do you ever cook with it? You know, it became very scarce for a while. Really? It still is, I imagine. Yeah, we overfished the crap out. But I learned brandad. De Moru. Moru is the What cod. does that mean? Brandad is, um, they take the salted cod, you soak it in water overnight, you change the water, change the water, change the water, bring it to one boil, take it out, flake it up. Now it's still, you know, jerky, kind of fish jerky now. Yeah. You know, and it's got a little wet dog smell to it. True. And so what are you going to make with it? So you take olive oil in a pan, you take a ton of garlic, just slice it and just let it fry in there a little bit. Don't brown it. I mean, I'm talking about one third of an inch of olive oil in a large pot. It's a lot of olive oil. 
Yeah. Now what you're going to do is you're going to start getting this stuff. You put this cod in there and you keep working it. So a wooden pounder so that it's absorbing and cooking and getting in all of these uh, flavors of the olive oil and the garlic. Somehow garlic and salt cod are stupid together. So then you have to start to thicken it up. So you got to add some potato to it. You add, usually really? it's just rice potato. So now you got potato and the cod, and you don't add any seasoning because the salt is already there, you know? And then you huh. just keep mixing that in, you put a little cream, keep cooking it, cooking it, cooking it, until it just reduces down to this rich, creamy, oh, garlicky, man. salt balance with the potato, and you make cakes out of them, or you just cook it like that and serve it. You've got this whole orgasmic look on your face. Okay, really quick. Wines, what am I going to drink with this? You could go reds, you could go light Italian reds, you could go pinot, why not? And if you wanted whites, they'd have to have some crisp acidity that are going to be able to you know, hang in there. It's a lot of richness going on. You don't want any buttery wines with this. No, I would highly discourage that. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break here. My guest today is Rick Moonen. Oh my gosh. We could talk literally for weeks and weeks because the things that this man has done is what you would expect from five people. Chef Rick Moonen will be back with us on Grape Encounters in just a second. When we think of sommeliers, we naturally think of wine, right? Well, not so fast. Did you know there are sommeliers for milk, salt, mustard, and even chocolate? Thanks to endless food shows, off-the-wall cookbooks, celebrity chefs, and Google, of course, meals have become so imaginative that wine pairing can be as daunting as it is delightful. And that's one of the best reasons to make Total Wine & More an essential part of your culinary adventures. With more than 8,000 wines from every corner of the world to choose from, Total Wine & More can make mealtime magical. And no matter how exotic or off-the-wall your meal may be, your Total Wine expert is all about finding the perfect match. But if you just want a little inspiration without leaving home, you can log on to TotalWine.com for awesome food pairings, enticing discoveries, and online ordering. There's a world of wine in store. A total wine and more. We're back with more Grape Encounters. Hey, please do us an enormous favor and like us on Facebook. It's the very best way to learn about other opportunities that we may not share on the broadcast. Also, join our mailing list on GrapeEncounters.com. Listeners on our contact list receive some exclusive opportunities. Become an insider. Enough said. Here's your wine captain... David Wilson. Hey, we're back with Grape Encounters Radio, and I am so tickled to death to be talking to somebody that I became friends with last year, and I just have enjoyed every interaction with him. He is top shelf where chefs are concerned, and he also, by the way, took second place in the Top Chef Masters, one of just many, many, many awards that he has won. It's Rick Moonen, and how do you get into all these competitions, or do these awards just sort of find you, or you find out that you were the chef of the year here or there? How does that work? I got the award for first losers, but that's what second place is. (laughs) 
But that was a fan favorite. Yay. Okay. But that was a fun time. And was, I would never volunteer to do that, David. You know, I had a restaurant in Las Vegas in, in Mandalay Bay for 13 years. And during that period of time, from John Tezar that worked for me to about three or four other times, uh, other cooks and stuff, they were approached to audition to be a competitor on Top Chef. And I watched them go through audition, second audition, third discussion, to that, to, you know, to do a short video yeah. and all that. Kind. None of them got on, not a single one. So I'm like, Getting on top shelves isn't so easy. You know? So I get a phone call from the head of the PR department for MGM Grand that owns Mandalay. And this PR girl goes, yeah, Rick, they're uh, starting a new show. It's called Top Chef Masters. And they're looking for chefs, characters that have owned their own restaurants. You know, they're, they're established yeah. chefs to compete against each other. And, uh, you know, they just want to know if you're interested. I said, sure. You know, hung up the phone with complete comfort. <laughs> this isn't going to go anywhere, you know. Yeah. I get the call. Next following day, I get a call. She goes, uh, Rick, so what's your schedule? <laughs> for, for what? <laughs> no, you're in, you know, already being, you know, like they must have been real desperate or something because they didn't even interview me. I was like, get ready again, you know. And, you know, I find myself in this position. I had to get sent a series of discs, previous shows, so that I could study what I was up against because I knew of the show and Tom and all these people, but I didn't like religiously watch it. And now I can't not watch it because it's comes part of your DNA once you go through that competitive experience. And the best part of it all is making really good friends. The hardest part was watching people stress out so much that they allowed you to, to just destroy yourself because it became better, you know, a reality TV for them. So people take that very seriously behind the scenes too. The pressure that you see on TV is not an act. Oh, not at all. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you have a little bit longer to think about things and then maybe they show you. But sometimes, you know, they give you a challenge and you have to sign a release on it. It's just insane bouncing around. You know, I can't help myself clean up on ADD. I can't help it. ADD will kill you in competitions, but I got to clean that up. That's killing me. You know, and I'm watching Seuss really just picking up blenders by their tail, you know, by just throwing them into a height. <laughs> you know what? You're making me nervous now. I'm watching you relive these experiences and the stress on and your I face. wake up in the middle of the night. <gasps> All right, we got to get to my questions. I still have like eight questions for you and we're just eating up time here, right? Okay. We were talking about halibut and cod, right. but now I want to turn to a fish that I think is the most delicious thing imaginable if it's cooked correctly. And that would be what? Chef, what would it be? Cobia. Well, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> I was going to say Chilean sea bass. Anybody can cook Chilean sea bass. Hey, come on, and, man. And, you can, just... and anybody can screw it up too, you know, but it's, 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 it's the marshmallow of the ocean. You know, you just have to toast the outside in the middle, gooey and delicious. How, how and long should you cook Chilean sea bass for? How long? Are you sauteing it? You're roasting it? You're steaming I, I, it? I don't I know. Mean, you could fry this. You could do anything to this fish. I'll, I mean, it's bulletproof. Sometimes it's like $48 a pound for consumers, okay? I don't want to screw it up. So I call my friend Chef Rick. Mm-hmm. And I Go say, Rick. And Rick says, David, you can't screw up. You can overcook it by 50% too much. It's still going to be absolutely delicious. It is the richest, most delicious fish because it's sweet. It's a Patagonian toothfish, by the way. That's what you're really eating. That's categorically what it's called. In terms of sustainability, how is the fish population where this particular fish is concerned? Bad, really bad. It's bad. But there are areas. It's a vast, open, wide Cowboy ocean land down, way down south, you know, below the equator, Chilean. It's rough water is hard to monitor all this stuff. And so the fish has been really, really overfished, but certain areas are doing it right. Okay. So it's good to know that you can't screw up this fish because I've ruined it a number of times, but I guess maybe it wasn't ruined. Let's talk about the wine with that for a second. Okay. You got this rich, buttery, delicious, melt in your mouth fish. You paid a lot of money for it. What are you going to pair it with? Well, of course, it's going to depend on your preparation. 
If you're going down Spice Row, get yourself some Riesling. Enjoy a Riesling with it. That's a great idea. Yeah. How about maybe like a Verdejo? Verdejo is a really good idea. Really good. That's green. It's delicious. It's going to be perfect with Chilean sea bass. That's like biting into an apple. You want that kind of stuff. But I mean, no reason to shy away with wines with a little residual sugar. Mm -hmm. Tell me how that works. If I have a little residual sugar, and this is an oily fish, is it not? It's pretty oily? Yeah, it's an oily fish. Yeah. So you definitely don't want Viognier. Oh, Viognier. Okay, yeah. Yeah, You don't want Viognier with this. No way. Okay, but you know, you just said residual sugar and a lot of Viognier has residual sugar. All right. So Riesling is a good way to go. Because usually when you have residual sugar, you have lower levels of alcohol, less chance of that spice to blow up in your mouth. All right. I'm going to totally change subjects right now. This is one of the most important fish questions I can ask. And it has to do with fish and chips, the kind of fish that you use for fish and chips. Why is it so darn hard to get a breading that just shatters, you know, that's just crunchy and crisp and beautiful. I like it that way. I don't like mushy fish and chips. Help me out. What kind of batter do I use that gives you that? You know what I'm talking about? It just shatters. It breaks, you know, when you bite into it. There's crunch, real crunch. crunch. Where do I get the crunch? Rice flour. Rice flour. Uh, Rice flour, cornstarch. Yeah, rice flour. Rice flour is what you use when you're doing tempura. And temper what does what? Is crunch. Exactly. Right? So so and so and make sure it's really, really cold. So am so I you, am I using any wheat flour or none at all? Cut the wheat flour 50-50 with some rice flour, right? Mix it with ice cold water, right? If you put your egg in there, mix your egg with the water and just, and just incorporate it so you don't build up gluten. Man, it should be like a lightly whipped cream, you know, very lightly, like um just just coating. You yeah. know, and that's tempura. Now, if you want it to be a beer batter or that, then then you incorporate beer into it instead of water and make sure that's really cold, but it's all sort of similar idea and you want it to be a little thicker. So what wine should I have with fish and chips? Should it be beer? Should my wine be beer? <laughs> should my wine be beer? It's certainly the go-to, I would say. Let me think of what I would want with fish and chips. What, what, what would you have with something that's malty? Because you know malt vinegar automatically. So this is, this is how my brain works. What goes with fish and chips? So, you know, actually, and my, my, my brain is going towards something that's got a little oakiness to it. I think I can hold up. You know, that's sort of kind of similar to beer. I I do something, by the way, Chef, that uh, you probably will um, cringe when I tell you this. But I like to mix beer and Sauvignon Blanc together. And I really do. I Uh, I mix it 50. I mix it 50. You make a shanty. (laughs) Yeah, I call it wine. Wine. Probably gets, you know, to go back to your original question, because this is what's popped into my head, is I want something that's sort of matterized, but naturally and deliciously. So you could go into sherries a little bit, you know, a little, maybe a little fino with with your fish and chips might be kind of a cool way to Uh, hang. All right. So here's something that I don't think anybody would say, but I think it might be the perfect thing for fish and chips, and that is a pet nat. A lot of people don't know what pet nat is, but it's getting really, yeah, really I mean, hot. It's basically a, a bubbly that is made the same way that champagne is made, except it doesn't go through a second fermentation. There's no dosage. So it's got this sort of natural- It's not yet, it's not yet finished fermentation. Yeah, it's got this natural kind of character, like a hippie from the 60s, basically. It's very hip right now. You're going to see a lot of them. It's P-E-T-N-A-T. That's what you want. 
And I tell you what, mm. that's the perfect companion for fish and chips. And I've never tried it, but I can taste it in my brain right now. Well, you get back to me on that one. I'm kind of. I, you know what? I'm gonna. I'm gonna I'm actually. I'm, no, I'm gonna send you a bottle. I'm gonna send you a bottle. Fair enough. All right. Hey, we're talking to Chef Rick Moonen, and he is really the Sultan of seafood. And we're just. I'm throwing out my seafood questions here because I got the top dog, the number one guy on planet Earth, talking seafood with me. So <laughs> you know, gotta get those really good questions out there. And I've got a really big one when we come back with Grape Encounters. Even though I spend almost every waking hour trying to track down all things wine, it takes nearly superhuman powers to keep up with the folks at Total Wine & More. I remember the first time I ever set foot in a Total Wine & More store, my jaw literally dropped to the floor as I tried to comprehend the astonishing wine spirit and beer offerings that were suddenly at my fingertips, wonderfully organized for super easy navigation. How do they pull off such an amazing feat? Well. It all comes down to an incomparable team of experts that constantly searches every corner of the world for amazing products priced so you can enjoy them on any occasion. Total Wine doesn't just sell the same old, same old. They're always busy forging relationships with outstanding producers on every continent so that they're able to provide exceptional wines that are exciting and new to you at incredible savings. New discoveries, must-have favorites, and more than 8,000 wine choices that you can even explore from home on your laptop or phone. Explore Total Wine in whatever manner suits you best, in person or if you've come to enjoy that curbside experience, you can order online at TotalWine.com and pick up your wine in the store or just outside if a contactless experience is your preference. And make sure to check for special opportunities that are always plentiful at TotalWine.com. There are always plenty of reasons to get excited about your next Total Wine experience. We like to talk about wine. Did you know that there's a lot more going on in the world of Grape Encounters than what you hear each week on the radio show? If your answer is no, it means that you're not as plugged into our wild, wacky, and wonderful world of wine. But we can fix that right now. I really want to share a lot more with you than what we're able to do during the weekly show like wine recommendations, interesting ways you can play with your wine, information about upcoming wine happenings, and even recipes I've developed just for you. There are two things you can do to get plugged in. First, join the Grape Encounters Radio group page on Facebook. Make sure it's the group page. Or you can sign up for our mailing list at grapeencounters.com. In coming weeks, I'll be doing giveaways, offering free online parties exclusively for you, and a lot more. Please, don't miss out. Connect with me on Facebook or at GrapeEncounters.com. Hey, we're back with Chef Rick Moonen. And like I said earlier, he's the Sultan of Seafood. He is to seafood what Elon Musk is to the Energizer Bunny. Now, Chef Rick, I have like about five questions, so we're going to do kind of like a, a lightning round. Fair enough? Rapid fire. So the first question is this. When you go into the market, there is one fish that every year becomes a larger and larger percentage of the fish that's available, and it just kind of 
torques me, and it's tilapia. But I bought some the other day, and it was pre-seasoned in this deli department. And I cooked it, and it was absolutely delicious. So now I'm torn. Is that a decent fish? Yes or no, it is a decent fish. All fish are decent. It's a fish that you could dig a hole in your backyard, fill your garden hose, and, and grow. So there's so many <laughs> okay. different people doing it because it's so easy. But a lot of Indonesian sources are just doing it with no regulations whatsoever. And you're getting some nasty stuff that could be really bad for you. So if you go U.S. tilapia or even catfish, you are way above the curve and treat it just like any, you can broil it. It's fantastic. It's got a great texture. I make sloppy joes out of tilapia. How do I take a fish like that and make it deep and dark so that I can have some red wine with it? Oh, it would just matter what you put on the outside of it. Give me some hints. All right. We're going to go down Spice Road, so you're going to have to start thinking of maybe a red wine that's got enough lightness to it. So anyway, it'd be chili powder, a little touch of cumin, some red chili flakes, cayenne pepper. I'd make it spicy some salt, black pepper, and throw in some oregano. Why not? Oregano helps to become a bridge to red wine. You coat that, you pan sear it, or you're cooking it under the broiler. I need the wine with that now. In terms of red wines, I've noticed that you've mentioned always lighter red wines. Is there ever a case where we would drink something that's really dark? So you're talking about um, a huge red, like a super Tuscan? Yeah. What are we looking at here? Uh, so now a, I got a super a, Tuscan. A petite Syrah. Petite Syrah. I make a sauce with the wine and I might even braise it or, you know, you got to play off with tannins and you got to get some tannins into it. You you might become grapes inside of the the recipe itself, as a matter of fact, you know, like Veronique style. You you mentioned Chateauneuf de Pop. And here in the States, it's a type of wine. It's a blend that has become so incredibly popular and they call them GSMs. Grenache, Syrah, Mouvet. And those are grapes that are in Chateauneuf de Pop. But we don't call it Chateauneuf de Pop. We're not allowed to call it Chateauneuf de Pop. So I'm going to recommend that if you want a really, really delicious red wine to go with a bold seafood dish, try GSMs. I love the idea. I mean, Chateau de Pop has to come from the Rhone Valley, right. you know, in France. So You were going to throw in a tip that's going to make our fish cooking okay, life so, easier. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, so get yourself a cast iron griddle. Now, there's no side system. It's flat. You've got two little handles on the side. You slide that under your broiler, and you heat that pan up super hot, and you just take any fish, any fish you want, season it with what you wish, salt and pepper, butt rub, you know, whatever. I use butt rub a lot. Great to blend. And it's got little spices and zip to it, so you roll uh-huh. it around with some olive oil on a plate. You slide it, and then you open up your oven. After that, it's 10 minutes now that it's been heating up that cast iron pan. Slide it with the oil. Just let it cook. So now it's cooking both sides. That's, you know, you oh, just created okay. your, yeah. your own, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, George uh, Foreman Grill. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right? so, yeah, you okay. got that one. See, we connected. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so George Foreman Grill uh, for seafood. And you don't have, you know, you just cook it till, uh, you know. Brown you mentioned olive oil. Do, do I put olive oil on my plate or is it going on the griddle? Okay, on the plate. So it's on, on the plate. plate. Okay. You season the fish, you drizzle a little more on top, you flip it around, I slide everything with the oil onto my uh, griddle. And I see something almost like chives or something like that, just a little green speckle to go oh, with yeah. it. Yeah, whatever you All do right. from it with it then is, is up to you, but I'll cook whole sides of salmon like that. It's easy. Okay, I have like two more questions. I got to do them fast. Go. When we were talking about tilapia, there's another fish that you mentioned, and it's something that I really love to cook, and I think people for some reason sort of shy away from it, and it's catfish. And not just catfish, I think another fish that you can treat similarly 
is trout. Talk yep. trout and catfish because you're seeing more and more of it in the market. They're just delicious fish, but I think they're fish that people are a little apprehensive about. Yeah, trout fish is more flaky, it's sweeter. It's something I would not remove the skin off of. I'd leave the skin on trout. Trout skin is delicious. Catfish, catfish has got, you don't want to eat the skin on a catfish, but you definitely, you could fry it, you could cook it. I wouldn't consider it flaky, but like tilapia, it has a good resilience to it. Yeah. You know, and it's got to be good catfish. It's got to be catfish that people know how to raise, you know, what they eat, how they're handled, how they're purged, how you get them is important. So I would, you know, I was running a restaurant wanting consistency and what I would serve my guests, I would make sure I got catfish on a single reliable source. But as long as it's farm raised in the United so States, you're good. So if, if you had to choose between catfish and trout, mm-hmm. do you have a favorite? Ooh, probably catfish. Probably catfish. Catfish is easier to work with for most people. All right. The other fish besides tilapia that you see so much of, you see it everywhere. And I tend to shy away from it just because it's just out there every place you look. It's salmon. Mm -hmm. And then you've always got the salmon that has been colored and the salmon that is natural. I don't know why they color the fish, but is there a difference? And should we stay away from a fish that's been dyed? Okay. Well, <laughs> dying of the fish is in their feed and it's a, it's a carotenoid and it's just like normal, but it's, it's not chemicals, but it does color the fish because they normally eat krill, which has that carotenoid uh, within its body in the oil, which is a small shrimp. So there's a lot of good farming out there. That's what I'm about to tell you. There's, there's been bad farming for a long, long time. And I would just tell you, stay away from farm raised, but farm raised salmon is incredible source of uh, omega-3 fatty acids that your body needs, craves, et cetera, et cetera. It's brain food. You know, so uh, I, I don't have a problem bringing home and working with a well-sourced Atlantic salmon. And of course, any any wild salmon is fine. All right. And we didn't talk wine with salmon, but I'm going to let you pick one really quick. And I'm going to tell you my pick for salmon because it's pretty interesting. Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. You know what? Absolutely. That's a, a great choice. And there's something else that's become really popular in the last couple of years, and it's pink Prosecco. Pink Prosecco. What do you think? I love the idea. I'm big on rosé. I'm not afraid to say it, man. Yeah. I'm a rosé all day kind of guy sometimes. And you know know what? Bubbles in general, talking about, you know, something that will pair with darn near any fish out there, break out the bubbles. Rick, thanks for being on. I sure appreciate it. Love you, my friend. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back here next week with somebody that hopefully will be as exciting and interesting as Rick. We'll see you then. This edition of Grape Encounters has been brought to you by Total Wine & More. When Total Wine & More challenged themselves to keep more than 8,000 wines on hand, they pioneered a consumer experience that 99.999% of the population would have thought was impossible. It was an undertaking that I still can't totally get my arms around today. But I've spent many hours of my personal time being that adult kid in a candy store, using my mouse to learn about their extremely affordable top 20 wines of the year, or learning eye-opening details about the iconic winemakers behind Total Wine's Legends of Wine collection. TotalWine.com is an online resource so rich with content, it's hard to imagine a more satisfying wine-related experience. Spend all the time you want at TotalWine.com or at your nearest store. Just make sure you're back here with me at the same time next week for another Grape Encounter. (music) 